Welcome to Sane Split, a podcast about staying sane when relationships end. I am AJ Jakubowska, family law lawyer and mediator. Just like you, I'm human. I understand what can happen when people separate. Lots of questions swirling around like confetti. Lots of uncertainty, perhaps anger, disappointment, or even pain. Sleepless nights, shallow breathing. Will I ever be happy again? Will the kids be okay? How much is all this going to cost? All of these questions are human and you're not alone. This podcast features my thoughts about separation and my interviews with other humans who help people when their relationships end. People who assist with legal issues, who mediate, who look after hearts and minds, and even after the pocketbook. People who might help you plan your future. What you will hear is not legal advice. These are dialogues primarily about the human aspect of separation. We will try to stay away from legal lingo. It's humans talking to humans. I hope that something you hear will help you navigate your way to a sane split. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. Separation involves having to make a lot of decisions. Sometimes such decisions have to be made quickly with little opportunity to mull them over, to consider the short and long-term consequences over a period of days or even hours. You might be expected to dig into your deepest reserves and often, despite facing a lot of emotional pressure, to make a quick selection as to the next step in your case, for example, or about an important issue. In the context of a separation, having to make a decision quickly is not ideal, but again, sometimes it's necessary. The better approach, if available, is what I call a front-loaded decision. It's one which is considered over a period of time, viewed from various hypothetical angles, weighed as to its possible consequences, and appraised with the benefit of expert input. It's also a decision which involves a consideration of alternatives. Front-loaded decisions are ideal in family law, in my view. They are a particularly important type of decision to choose, again, where possible, because separation is such an emotion-filled time. And when emotions get into the mix, chances for error grow exponentially. By now, our topic for today is hopefully revealing itself. Decisions, decisions, decisions in the context of a separation. How to make them, when to make them, what steps to take to maximize chances that they're best for you and your kids. All of these are very important questions, and in this episode... I offer some suggestions. The last 30 years or so have given us a lot of research on 
how our brains, our human brains work. This includes fresh and exciting science on how we make decisions. The field of neuroscience devoted to the study of the nervous system has given us incredible insight into brain function. This in turn has helped us understand the biological basis of decision-making, learning, memory, behavior, perception, and even consciousness. As a Buddhist, I am particularly excited when I hear about efforts to understand the benefits of meditation, for example, from a neuroscientific perspective. Scientists, as we know, do not always agree. But my take is that this heterogeneity of ideas makes studying this area all the more interesting. These are subjects which interest me very much, and here I try to read as much as I can. For example, there is a debate going on about the role of intuition in decision-making. You know, that gut feeling people talk about. Is there such a thing? What is intuition? Some scientists say it's nothing more than the process of tapping into past experience and making a decision based on a synthesized, distilled recording of past similar encounters. For me, fascinating subjects. There is a book I enjoyed reading very much called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman an Israeli psychologist and economist known for his seminal work on the psychology of judgment and decision-making, including in the field of economics. He has also written extensively on heuristics and biases. These are strategies used by humans, but also by organizations and machines to quickly form judgments to make quick decisions. I have become a huge fan of his over time, and his writing has influenced how I think about decision-making and, in fact, how I process information to begin with. I will include information about his book in the episode notes in case you are interested. Kahneman and his colleague Amos Tversky won the Nobel Prize for their work on the prospect theory. They studied how humans make decisions when facing risk, especially financial risk. They found that rather than consider the long-term consequences of their decisions, use foresight to maximize strategically for long-term utility, humans think in terms of gains and losses, which are short-term. In this respect, they're guided by emotions, and their primary motivation is to avoid loss and to maximize gain. If I have piqued your interest here, you might also consider a great book by Tali Sherrod called The Influential Mind in which she writes in a very engaging way about influence and how 
we might go about influencing others. Here, quite paradoxically, the diagnosis runs counter to that given for effective decision-making, but I'm not going to give away the plot. Read her book if you are interested. I will include information about it in the episode notes as well. Observations of our own behavior and that of others around us tells us, and science confirms, that humans hate to lose and love to win. Much of what we do every day is motivated by this hardwiring, this drive, which is based on emotion, can be helpful in low-level decisions. For high-level decisions, however, there is an increased risk of error when emotions are involved. In the context of separation, our natural drive to maximize wins and minimize losses in the short term can be heightened by a wish for revenge, for example or a need to prove to prove perceived moral superiority. I need to win this point to show you how right I am and how wrong you are. Or I need to win this point because you need to be punished for what you did to me. So what do you do? There is no way of avoiding sidestepping the many and varied decisions you will have to make when a relationship ends. Are there general themes of what to strive for and what to avoid at this important and impactful time in your life? Yes. And I'm going to share some of my suggestions with you. This is by no means a definitive list. These are Suggestions based on my experience both as a human and also as a professional with almost 25 years of practice observing people making decisions in the context of separation, including in very stressful situations like settling right before a trial, for example, and handling offers to settle which are about to expire. Here are my suggestions. Number one, do not make your decisions based on emotions, on gut feelings or intuition, on what your heart tells you. Your gut is not an organ designed to analyze data, consider alternative approaches, weigh pros and cons, both short-term and long-term, to analyze risk and to use forecasting to maximize utility, particularly in situations involving money. Your gut is not capable of understanding chances of success based on legal claims, for example. It cannot negotiate strategically and with the benefit of reason. In fact, your gut cannot reason at all. Following your gut or your heart means reacting emotionally, reacting emotionally. That heightens, heightens significantly chances for error. 
Sometimes such decisions cannot be reversed and you may be stuck with an error you made for a long, long time. It may impact not only you, but your children. The organ that is capable of handling to your benefit that series of functions I just listed is your brain. You should be making decisions in the context of your separation using your brain and not your gut or your heart. Number two, and this is tied to the first point, consider the long-term consequences of your decision, not just the immediate win-loss dopamine hit that humans are hardwired to crave. Consider this example. You are angry because you just found out your spouse was having an affair and this relationship continues after the separation. The other parent's access with the kids is about to begin. That parent is about to arrive at the house to pick them up. You want revenge, punishment. You want to be in control. So you turn off the lights, take your young kids to the basement, tell them to be quiet, tell them someone bad is coming to the door, so no one should answer it. The other parent arrives and no one answers the door. You feel a sense of vindication, a short-term dopamine hit, a win. But one of the kids has looked through the basement window and can see the other parent's car and feet as they stand at the door. Have you considered the long-term consequences of your decision to deny access that day? Have you thought about the impact of labeling the other parent as bad on their future relationship with the kids or on the kids themselves? That decision was emotion-driven, pure and simple. No consideration of data, no balancing of pros and cons, no input from your lawyer as to the legal consequences. Number three, when you have time, take the time. Very often in my practice, I have clients who believe that when a letter comes from the other lawyer, the response has to be immediate, virtually instant. They become very stressed, sometimes quite upset by their perceived need to respond right away. This is not a criticism. It's an observation I'm making to illustrate my point. The key is to ask, do we actually need to respond right away? Sometimes the answer is yes, because the letter deals with an event, for example, which is about to happen. But very often, the pressure to respond is only perceived. It may be related to the fact that the letter makes allegations which the client believes are false, and their instinct quite naturally is to fire back immediately and correct the error. The reality is that most of the time, an immediate response is not only not required, it is counterindicated, not actually helpful. Why? Because you guessed it, 
time allows one to prepare a measured, reasoned response based on front-loaded decisions about issues and organized evidence to counter the false allegations. My suggestion here is the following. Slow things down when you can. Ask your lawyer, do we have to send a letter back right away? If the answer is no, we do not, sleeping on it is a great idea. Several hours later, your emotions will not be as acute. Your brain will have subconsciously processed the information, sorted it out, organized it. A response formulated with the benefit of time will be less prone to error. There is also such a thing as decision fatigue, and I want to devote a few words to this phenomenon as well. It's essentially low mental energy creeping in over time. Science tells us that when humans have to make a string of decisions, particularly in a context involving pressure, stress, and emotion, the decisions may become less reliable less effective over time. Some people become reckless as their mental energy is depleted. Others start taking shortcuts and considering less of the data available and required to make the right decision. All of this is happening without your being conscious of it. So again, slow things down if you can. And... If you are having to make five decisions, ask whether they all have to be made right away or whether any of the five can be considered as less of a priority. This way, you will actively address the risks that come with decision fatigue. Number four, particularly when faced with a decision on a subject with which you don't have everyday experience and expertise. Seek guidance and input from experts. In fact, you might even consider getting a second opinion in an area with which you do have everyday experience, like parenting your own kids, for example. Why? Again, because in the context of separation, the emotion meter is at 11, as they say. And you are likely looking at what would otherwise be everyday decisions through an emotional and stress lens. So second opinions from an independent pair of eyes are important. But back to experts. If you are considering accepting spousal support in a lump sum, for example, ask yourself, are you equipped to know whether the amount proposed is representative of the actual claim you have, what you are legally entitled to? Would you be able to determine whether the amount being proposed is sufficient to meet your financial needs for the rest of your life? If you were to accept the lump sum, would you then know how to maximize its yield what to do with it to make it last the longest? Should that not inform your decision about the lump sum? 
this is a good example of a decision on which you should definitely get expert advice. Here's another example. If you and your spouse are hypothetically engaged in a high-conflict dispute related to your kids, one of whom has special needs, and you fundamentally disagree on the course of treatment for your child, both long-term and short-term, should your decisions going forward not be guided by the advice of experts in the area of your child's special needs? At the very least, should you not have the expert data opinions before making your decision, even if in the end you decide not to follow them? If you are designing in the context of a high-conflict case a method of resolving any disputes with your spouse going forward, if you're considering the content of what we call a dispute resolution clause in a parenting plan, for example. Should you not be working on this with a lawyer who has experience with such clauses? Who can foresee, based on their experience, the pros and cons of various options for this clause? If there is a kid's expert involved in your case, should his or her view about that dispute resolution clause not be considered? Absolutely. Seeking out expert advice is a sign of a healthy approach to complex decision-making. So who is the ideal advisor? Daniel Kahneman says, quote, a person who likes you and doesn't care about your feelings close quote. I really like that description. It's someone who will give you advice based on their expertise and that alone. In other words, if the advice is not what you are expecting, they will give it to you anyway, without regard to whether your feelings may be hurt. That objectivity is very, very important, and you need it when you're making decisions in the context of a separation. I have an episode in the works about the chorus. We family law lawyers sometimes use this as description for people who offer advice to separated spouses with the best of intentions, for sure, but sometimes without actual knowledge or appreciation of the facts, the legal issues, and the evidence. Often such advice is either consciously or subconsciously motivated by a desire to be supportive, which is a great motivator. But sometimes it amounts to telling the person what they want to hear, and this does not actually help. So that episode will refer back to what we have covered here. My last point, number five, respect yourself. What do I mean here? You matter. Your life matters. Your future matters. Your positions and opinions matter. You have the right to put them forward and to have them considered. Make decisions about your life in a way 
which maximizes chances that these decisions will be best for you and your kids. Do it using your brain and not your heart or gut to the greatest extent possible. When emotions come flooding in, try and recognize what is happening. Slow things down if you can. Talk to your lawyer, to your experts. Tell them you are overwhelmed. That is what I mean by respecting yourself. We have come to the end of this episode. I hope something I said today will help you find your way to a sane split. Thank you for listening. I hope you will tune in again. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me through my website, separationinontario.com. Subscribing to the podcast through your favorite app will make future episodes available to you automatically. Signing off for now.